Well, good morning, everyone. Like Kyle said, welcome to Family Church. Uh, excited about this new Christmas series that we're starting this morning. And glad you're here to uh, be a part of this with us. Uh, the problem, one of the problems with uh, doing a Christmas series is, uh, actually, there's probably a couple of problems. First, our familiarity with it. Uh, we've heard it so many times, for the most part, right? W- whether you grew up in the church or not, you've heard the Christmas story. And I think that you, we've heard it so many times, so many different ways, so many different angles, uh, that I think that there's a tendency to maybe lose our appreciation for it, especially the miraculous aspects of it, because we've heard it so many times. The other problem is uh, there's not a whole lot of information given about Jesus' birth, unlike his death, where there is excruciating uh, information and detail about his death. Only Matthew and Luke, of the, two, of the four gospel writers, only Matthew and Luke mention Jesus' birth. And even those two accounts, and this, this is interesting, even in those two accounts we see a couple of different approaches. Matthew's account seems intent on pointing out that Jesus' birth is not just for the Jews, but for Gentiles as well. That's why he mentions the wise men. And we're going to see this a little bit later in our study. Because these are wise men from the east, which made them Arabs. These weren't Jews. These weren't a part of God's covenant people, right? Not just Gentiles, but very wealthy Gentiles, because these these wise men, these magi, uh, would have been pretty well off financially or economically. Luke, on the other hand, mentions some shepherds, which would seem to indicate that Jesus' birth was also for the lowly, those at the other end of the socioeconomic scale. So it's interesting how those two accounts kind of cover the whole gamut. Jesus' birth was for everyone, the the Jews, the non-Jews, the holy, those at the poverty level, and even the richest. So even in those two different accounts, we see the, the expansion of the Christmas story. But sometimes our familiarity with the Christmas story can hinder not only our appreciation for it, but also our willingness to learn from it. So this year for our Christmas series, I want us to look at the Christmas story through the lens of worship, through the lens of worship. But to me, one of the most fascinating parts of the story is the star, the star. I mean, it actually plays a more prominent role than I think we might realize. That's the title of the series, Star of Wonder. So as we begin our Christmas series this year, I want to, first of all, look at the chronology of the events surrounding the birth of Jesus, because this is something that most people don't know. Not that knowing these things would make you appreciate the story anymore, but I do think it helps bring a greater appreciation for all the miraculous events that took place at that first Christmas. So I want to begin by filling in some of the chronology surrounding the birth of our Lord. To do this, we need to read both Matthew and Luke's account of the Christmas story. Luke's account mentions shepherds, while Matthew's account mentions wise men. Most of the versions we hear are taken from Luke's account uh, of the Christmas story. But to piece together the timeline surrounding Jesus' birth, you need to include Matthew's account as well. So let's read the more traditional, familiar Christmas story from Luke, and then we'll look at Matthew's and see if we can't begin to piece together a timeline and some sense of chronology surrounding the Christmas story. Luke 2, 1 through 6, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth. So, note here, at this time, Joseph and Mary lived where? Nazareth, okay? To Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of the, of the, and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, beginning at verse 7. 
And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths. That's an interesting statement we'll come back to. And laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now listen, listen closely to what the angel says to these shepherds. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. In other words, the Messiah is here. Okay? Messiah is here. The one we've all been waiting for, the one the prophets talked about, the Savior, the Messiah, has come. That was the announcement of the angel to these shepherds. And every Jew, listen, every Jew would have known exactly what that angel was referring to. Every good Jew would have known that, right? Then verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swallowing cloths and lying in a manger. Pick up at verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of the heavenly host praising God saying and saying, glory to God in the highest, on earth peace and among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Now, most Christmas story narratives stop here. But in order to help us understand the chronology and put together the timeline of these events, we actually need to read the next couple of verses. All right, let's look at verses 21 to 23. And at the end of eight days... When he was circumcised, talking about Jesus, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification, there's referring to Mary and Jesus, as we'll see in a moment how long this time frame was, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. Now, let's go back through here and see if we can't figure out some chronology here surrounding this. So Joseph and Mary are in Bethlehem. Jesus was born. Eight days later, they have Jesus circumcised, and then the days of Mary's purification process begins, which the Old Testament is 40 days. That's a 40-day time period. So Joseph, and Mary be, uh, so Joseph and Mary and Jesus stay in Bethlehem 40 days. Okay, after he... And we'll see that here in just a minute. It was at this point, after Joseph and Mary returned to Bethlehem, that the guy or the wife here, and we'll see that when we read Matthew's account. So please note that the wise men did not come to Jesus when he was at the stable lying in the feeding trough or a manger. That would have been the shepherds. Luke mentions in his account. Luke mentions the shepherds. So look, not wanting to be a Debbie Downer here, but everyone, I don't want to burst your image of the nativity because my wife collects them. We, we have what we call the shrine to the nativities in our dining room. Uh, seriously, see, I mean, it's, it's kind of a cool thing when, when our house, when we did the tour of homes couple years ago we made that part of the we made it fun for the people that came to uh, we had them count how many nativities and i think and ed osborne actually won uh but anyway so uh we've got this view of the nativity and uh where we've got uh we've got the stable we've got the manger jesus lying in there all these farm animals and we have these uh, three wise men and the shepherds no wise men weren't there and we're going to see that in a minute now look that that doesn't mean that, that doesn't make Christmas any less meaningful. I'm sorry. You know, that, that was just a marketing tool by Precious Moments to add more figurines to those 
nativity scenes for 130 bucks. It's a marketing tool to get all those figurines in there. But historically, the wise men hadn't got there yet. But again, that doesn't take away from the significance and the meaning of that first nativity. All right. So the wise men, uh, uh, the wise men saw a very bright light up, eye, and they called it a star. They called it a star because that's probably what they thought it was, and maybe it was. So they see this bright light up in the eastern sky, and then it went away. Then they waited. They waited for what? They waited to hear any news about this newborn king and Messiah. Now, if they would have left the night that Jesus was born, most scholars believe it would have taken them a minimum 10 days to 2 weeks at the earliest to arrive at Bethlehem, since it would have been about a 300-mile trip. That was about a 300-mile trip for the wise men, folks. Right? Think about that. We're talking about a trip from here to Oklahoma City. And they didn't have a Lexus and a Pike Pass. And they didn't go through the Flint Hills. It was rough desert terrain on camels and whatever else they might have ridden. Right? That's about how, how far the wise men would have traveled to see Jesus from here to Oklahoma City. Right? Now, let's go ahead and read Matthew's account of the Christmas story and where we're introduced to the wise men. Matthew 2, verses 1 to 12. Now, after, huge word, huge word, after, not during, right? Not during his birth, not after his birth, not before his birth, not on the night of his birth. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to where? Jerusalem, not Bethlehem. You see that? They came to Jerusalem, not Bethlehem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, that's a great question. Notice they didn't ask, hey, was a king born here recently? We think there might have been a king born recently because we saw some signs in the night sky that indicated that a king might have been born recently somewhere around here, and we're just checking that out to see if it's right. No, no, no. They knew a king had been born. Where is he? We know he's been born. Where is he? Right? Not is there a king, but where is the newborn king? Listen, people, you don't travel 300 miles hoping that a king's been born. Even today. <laughs> right? Even today. No, you don't. If you're traveling, you better have an expectation that you're going there for a reason, right? They said, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to, and here it is. Here's the single reason why they traveled 300 miles was to worship him was to worship him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly. Why secretly? All the power and resources that this guy had available to him as a king, why would Herod secretly summon the wise men? Why not just send a posse out to pick him up and bring him in? Because he had evil intent. He was trying to fly the radar here. Right? That's why. And ascertain from them, from the wise men, what time the star had appeared. The word ascertain speaks of a careful and thorough investigation. He wanted to know as accurately as possible when they saw this star in the night sky. Why? Why, did, why would he want to know that? Because that would give him a time frame for when the king was born. Right? And we know from another part of the narrative that it wasn't long after this that Herod sent troops to Bethlehem with the orders to care, to kill every male child. How old? 
two years old or younger. That's why Jesus so that his brutality could be revealed. Right? Verse 8, And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. Note here, Matthew refers to Jesus as a young child. Notice that. Not, not infant. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Question, is that what Herod wanted to do? No. No, he wanted to kill him. So another question. Now think about this. And I, I didn't think about this until my study this last week. Why didn't Herod, why didn't Herod just send some spies to follow the wise men? And then when they found Jesus, they, would, they could get him? You ever think about that? The guy was a king. He had all these reasons. Why, why not just send some spies? You know, the wise men leave and they said, hey, you guys, go follow them when they find Jesus killing. Right? I mean, no matter how mean or despicable you might think the guy was, he wasn't a dummy. He had resources. He was a sharp guy. Why? Why didn't he send spies to follow the wise men? I'll tell you why. Because the Holy Spirit prevented him. I'm serious. That's a fair question. Why wouldn't he have thought to do that? The point being, our God is able to protect us in ways that we don't even realize keeping things from entering the thoughts of our enemies, our adversary, adversaries, all right? I, I, I was pretty excited when I came across that. I don't, I don't. No, no, I don't care. No matter how, how powerful this guy was, trust me, he would have he would have done it. If he would have thought of it, he would have done it. And he didn't do it. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, now watch this next statement. This is huge. The star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the what? Baby? Where the infant? No, where the child was. And when they saw the star, they they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, wait, not stable? You mean, you mean, you mean, you mean stable, right? No, going into the house, they saw, again, young child, not baby, with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, note the plural form of the word, treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. All right, if you grew up in the church, you probably heard these wise men referred to because back then there weren't 14 different Bible translations and paraphrases, pretty much the King James. And uh, these wise men were called by a different name in Old English. You can tell me what it was. Magi. Magi. From which we get our English word magic or magician. But see, we hear that today and we're like, you know. But uh, look, it wasn't necessarily an occultic thing back then. I mean, I'm sure that could have been part of it. But the magi, back then a magician, think about it. A magician back then was someone who studied science and astronomy. Not astrology, (laughs) but astronomy, the celestial bodies, the stars, and galaxies. But they also studied medicine and culture and philosophy. That's one reason they were called wise men. They were very well-rounded in their education because of all the areas of discipline that they would study, which makes it all the more fascinating that these guys, Gentiles, right, not even a part of the covenant uh, with God's people, very well-to-do Gentiles. It's like it's not like they lack for things to do, you know. Hey, what do you think we just you know, drive right over to Bethlehem and see this baby or something like that, right? 
But why would they just up and drop everything and start following the star? Why would they, why would they have known to follow the star? Huh? Well, we'll look at that in a few minutes. The point be, to be made here is the fact that in spite of all their knowledge, in spite of all their resources, wealth, riches, in spite of all they had available to them, still they made a commitment to pretty much drop everything and go and find Jesus and worship him. But not just worship. No, not just worship. It was expectant worship. Expectant worship. In other words, these wise men had some expectations regarding their worship of this newborn king. Why else would they have traveled 300 miles? Again, this was 300 miles back then, not 300 miles today. Huge difference. Right? These wise men made this journey with the expectation that they would get to see the king, and they fully expected to get an audience with the king. So question, okay? When you come to church, when you come to worship Jesus the king, what are your expectations? Do you have any expectations? In other words, when you come to worship, do you expect to meet with God or not? Or has this thing become so mechanical and routine for you that you've even thought about that? Which is all the more reason why you need to answer that question, right? Because, listen, if you don't expect to meet with God, guess what? You won't. You won't. God's given us a free will. The ball's in our court, people. He'll meet us, you know, if we invite him, but he's a perfect gentleman. He won't go where he's not invited. These guys expected to meet with the king, and guess what? They got a meeting with the king, and their lives were forevermore changed. So they're watching this star, this, this bright light in the sky as they're waiting news on the Messiah's birth. And it's possible that they waited for weeks, even months, before heading to look for the newborn king. And finally, when no news came, they load up their camels and whatever, and they head to Jerusalem from the east. All right? Now, it may be that the star first appeared over Bethlehem when the Magi were in the east from Persia. And from that distance, they would have not been able to distinguish the exact location where that star was located at that time. But they certainly would have known to have headed west. They would have known that much. So they thought the logical place would be to go to the capital, Jerusalem. Okay? So that's what they do. That's the likely place to begin their search for the, the king of the Jews. Right? So it seems that the star may have disappeared by the time the Magi reached Jerusalem, but then reappeared when they began their much shorter journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. It kind of indicates that because when they left Herod's presence and headed out, it says the star reappeared. And that's how they ended up going to Bethlehem. All right? And that view is supported by the fact that first the Magi had to ask King Herod where the king of the Jews was born, which means the star wasn't guiding them at that time in Matthew 2.2. 2. And second, they rejoiced exceedingly when they saw the star again as they began their journey to Bethlehem. So let's get the chronology straight here. Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem to register for the census because that's where he's from, right, which, which means he would have had probably family there. That's important to note. He, he probably had some family there. So Mary and Joseph go to Bethlehem to register for the census. All the hotels are booked, so there's no place to stay. So they end up going to a stable, to a barn to spend the night. Sometime during that night, Jesus is born. Eight days later, they have Jesus circumcised uh, according to the Jewish law. Forty days later, they go back to Jerusalem to dedicate Jesus to the Lord and make sacrifice for him again according to the Jewish law. So why were Mary and Joseph still in Bethlehem? All right, let's look at the map. Go ahead and pull that map up, uh, Brett. All right, see, that that's where they started out, at Nazareth, up there. They come down to Bethlehem for the census, okay? Now, while they're there, Jesus is born. But they know 
that 40 days later, they, they've got to go to the temple and make sacrifice for Jesus being the firstborn male and for Mary's purification according to the Old Testament law. So you tell me, well, what, what, what's, what's the smart thing to do? Go all the way back up to Nazareth and then come back down or just stay in Bethlehem and then 40 days later, that's only a six-mile trip, right? So that's, that, to, see, to me, that, that, that makes sense. That, that's what they did. Well, just to, people, he's from there. He either stayed with family or got, maybe they rented a place. Maybe he just set up shop temporarily there. He was a carpenter. He, he had a trade, right? Does that make sense? Okay. So let's get the, uh, the timeline here. So, uh, 40 days later, they go back to Jerusalem to dedicate Jesus to the Lord to make sacrifice for him and for Mary's purification. Um, So if you're Joseph and Mary, what would you do knowing that you would have to bring Jesus back to the temple in less than six weeks? Just stay there. Just stay there, right? And look, Mary's already made, think about this, Mary's already made that trip being probably nine months pregnant or close to it, right? Think about that. Mary's already made that trip. Think how hard that would have been on Joseph. Just see if you're awake. Just see if you're awake. <laughs> now, it would have been hard on Mary, too, I'm, I'm sure. Right. So, so uh, where am I here? I got, I got sidetracked. Uh, no, she probably told Joseph, we ain't going nowhere, buddy. We're staying right here. We're staying right here 40 days. We'll go we'll make sacrifice, and then and we'll call it good, right? So Joseph, Mary, and Jesus apparently re- relocate to Bethlehem, right, uh, for a while after Jesus is born. Uh, either staying with relatives or maybe they rented a place. You know, again, uh, Joseph was a carpenter, you know. Probably maybe rented a place and built one of them little wood swing sets for Jesus out back, you know, and play out in the backyard. Maybe got one of the little Walmart pools, you know, Jesus out there walking on the water and something like that, you know. But anyway, so so Joseph and Mary go to Bethlehem for the census. While they're in Bethlehem, Jesus is born. Some, sometime shortly after Jesus was born, some shepherds come to worship Jesus. When they leave, they go into Jerusalem and begin telling everyone about the newborn king, the Messiah. The shepherds do, okay? Then instead of going all the way back up to Nazareth and then coming back to Jerusalem in 40 days to dedicate Jesus, they stay in Bethlehem either with relatives or Joseph sets up shop, starts his own business. So they stay there uh, perhaps for up to a couple of years. Might have stayed there for up to a couple of years, right? It was during this time that the wise men showed up to worship Jesus at his house, not at a stable, and present him with some gifts. God appears to Joseph in a dream and warns him about Herod's plot to kill all male children two years old and younger. Joseph takes Mary and Joseph, goes down to Egypt. See? Number four, goes down to Egypt, right? After being warned in the dream. Um to escape uh, the, the, the slaughter of Herod's henchmen. After getting the all-clear signal from God, they head back to Bethlehem. Either after arriving at Bethlehem or somewhere along the way, they find out that even though King Herod has died, his just-as-evil son, Archelaus, or whatever how you pronounce that, is ruler, but he's just as evil, if not more, than his dad. So instead of going back to Bethlehem, they go back to Nazareth. Okay? Does that make sense? So, so that's kind of the chronology of, of, of the Christmas story, all right? 
But here's how, here's how Matthew describes it. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to, in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life were dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what, what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Now, back to the wise men for a minute. So, uh, where were the wise men from? Well, they were from the east, or Persia, Arabia. That would have made them Arabs. So, in chapter 1, Matthew gives us Jesus' genealogy, which shows Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, the Savior of the Jews. But here in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew shows us that Jesus is also the Savior of those, any who would seek him, whether they're Jew or not. Like these wise men, right? Because they weren't Jews. Now, you, you think about this. They weren't even a part of the covenant with God, yet, yet they, they traveled over 300 miles for one purpose, to worship Jesus. Luke 2, 17, And when they saw him, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Right? So after going to worship the baby Jesus, the shepherds leave. They go out and start telling everyone about the newborn king, the Christ, the Messiah, uh, the one the prophets had spoke of who was to be born in Bethlehem. Shepherds leave the stable, go around proclaiming to anyone and everyone about the birth of Messiah. Forty days later, Joseph and Mary take Joseph to Jerusalem, to the temple, dedicate him or present him to the Lord according to the Jewish law. And it's at this point we're introduced to another character in the Christmas story. And even though his role is a little more of a cameo appearance, the significance of his role is no less important. When Joseph and Mary arrive at the temple to present Jesus, there's an older gentleman who happens to be there, a guy by the name of Simeon. All right? And the Lord apparently had spoken to Simeon or somehow showed him that he wouldn't die until he saw the Messiah. The, the phrase they used was the consolation of the Lord, but it's referring to the Messiah. So that day when Joseph and Mary show up to present Jesus at the temple, Simeon happens to be there. And when he sees this young couple carrying the baby into the temple to present to the Lord, Simeon immediately recognizes him. How? How did Simeon recognize him? Probably the same way that the Lord told him that he wouldn't die until he saw this by the baby, by the Holy Spirit, right? Another miraculous part of the Christmas story. But he there, sees Mary and Joseph walking with Jesus. He's, there he is, the Messiah, the promised one, the one the prophet spoke of. There he is right there. And then, if that weren't miraculous enough, an elderly lady named Anna, who happened to live at the temple, the Bible tells us, confirmed that Jesus was the Messiah. Now think about this. After the shepherds saw Jesus, they went out and told everyone what they had seen. When Simeon sees Jesus in the temple, he points at him and tells all who are present, there he is, the Messiah. And the temple was the hub of activity, so it was always crowded. Then Anna confirms it as well that he's the Messiah, telling anyone who will listen that there's the Messiah, he's come. The, the wise men, these Arab Gentiles, they've traveled 300 miles to see the Messiah, and most of the Jews in Jerusalem wouldn't travel five miles to see him, even though they had been proclaimed. Here's the, come see the king of the Jews, the one the prophet spoke of. Think about that. The Jews wouldn't, even those who knew the prophecies, the messianic prophecies, wouldn't travel five miles to, to see him, even to check it out, to see if it was legit. So what's your point, Pastor? My point is, and this isn't news to, to those of you who've been walking with Jesus for a while, but sometimes, you know, sometimes it takes effort to worship, doesn't it? Is that just me? I mean, I don't come here, you know, you know, with my game on every Sunday. 
I mean, there, there's sometimes, you know, I, I live out in the world like you guys do. Sometimes, you know, stuff happens. And, and I, I don't necessarily come here with a, an expectant heart of, I just, you know, really excited about getting to meet with Jesus. You know, sometimes I come really excited about blessing someone with a brick right over their head. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes worship is. And the Bible even talks about it. Paul calls it a sacrifice of worship because it, at that point it does cost us something, doesn't it? Because we don't want to do it. It's easy to worship when you want to worship. Not so easy when you don't want to, and that's why Paul called it a sacrifice of worship. All right? What's disturbing to me is the fact that these wise men, these Gentiles, these non-Jews, people who weren't even a part of the covenant with God, still made the effort to travel hundreds of miles, right, just to worship the Lord. And those who were part of God's covenant people, the Jews, they wouldn't even travel the distance from here to Baldwin. Think about that. And remember Matthew's account when the, when the wise men finally arrive in Jerusalem, they're asking around, has anyone seen the newborn king? When Herod hears the, these wise men, these magi from the east, are asking about the newborn king, look at Herod's response, Matthew 2, verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Why would all Jerusalem be troubled at this news? How many times have you read that? Why would all Jerusalem be troubled? We could see Herod. But why all Jerusalem? Why the Jews? Why God's covenant people? I'll tell you why. Because they were bound by a religious system and didn't want to change. Right? They, they were bound by a religious system that had totally squeezed the life out of a relationship with God. The Messiah has come. It's been verified by mul multiple times by multiple people, Jewish shepherds, Gentile Arabs from the east, a well-respected elder in the temple by the name of Simeon, a prophetess by the name of Anna. They all said about Jesus, this is him, the Messiah, and yet the majority of the Jews refused to go and worship him. Why? Why? Bondage. Bondage to religion. Bondage to a religious system that made them self-conscious about pursuing anything other than what they'd always known. Rather than worship God freely, they were more comfortable remaining in bondage than, than risking what others might think about them. Oh, here, here we go. I'm going to start preaching now. Oh, yes, he did. Worried about what, you know, risking what other people might think about him, even though the signs were all there, even though the messianic pro prophetic boxes, all those had been checked, man. They had all been checked. Even though it was confirmed that Jesus Christ was a newborn king, still, because they were worried about upsetting, upsetting the apple cart, as it were, the spiritual apple cart, rather than making waves, many of the Jews just refused to see him, let alone go check him out to see, just to see if it's legit. So question, do you ever not worship or limit your worship because of someone because of what someone might think. Why are we so hung up on that? I, I say we. I, 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 there's times I think about that a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm probably the one to blame for, uh, to be just being real honest with you. I'm probably the one to blame that we're, that we're not more demonstrative in our worship here at this church. And here's why: churches tend to take on the personality of their pastor. And 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 I I'm not a real demonstrative person uh, when it comes to worship. But man, that's my I can get demonstrative. When I see the Jayhawks go on a 14 to 2 run, I get demonstrative. Yeah. I can get demonstrative. It's just that we become selective. And, and, and think about this. And we're going to talk about this more. All right. So I got some, I got some more doses for you next week. Okay. But it, look, 
Here's what we, if you get nothing else, remember this, worship is not about us. It's not. Worship's about him. And if we would just remember that, that, that we, we could get a lot of mileage out of that. We really could. It's not about us. It's really not. It's about him. And if he is the king of kings, right? If he is, then he's, he's worth worshiping with everything we've got, right? Not just worshiping, but worshiping him with everything we've got. Now, real quick, why were the wise men looking for a star? I mean, other than the fact that they were magi, and magi did study the stars and galaxies. But aside from that, what prompted the wise men to look for a star or to guide them? The answer is pretty amazing here. The reason the wise men were looking for a star is because one of their prophets, that's right, a Gentile prophet, one of their prophets had prophesied about it, right? There was a prophet mentioned in the Old Testament who wasn't a Jew, but he had four prophecies that made it into the Bible. One time a king hired this prophet to, to curse Israel. This is, you can't make this stuff up. You, you need to read your Bible sometimes. But one time a king hired this prophet, prophet to curse Israel, but instead of cursing Israel, every time he opened his mouth, he blessed them. Can anyone tell me what this prophet's name was? Balaam. Remember Balaam, he of the donkey? He <laughs> of the donkey. Of the, that, that Balaam, right? Balaam wasn't even a Jew. He was a Gentile, right? Now, let's look at this. Numbers 24, 17. This is something that he prophesied. I see him, but not now. I, and, and, and by the way, this was hundreds of years before the wise men saw the star, okay? This is in Numbers, all right? Long time before Matthew, all right? He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. Why were the wise men looking for a star? Because one of their own prophets had prophesied about it hundreds of years before. Balaam was an Arab. He was from the east. And that's how the wise men would have known this, because they, they studied that stuff. They would have known about Balaam. Right? And that same star, remember, the wise men see the star that Balaam had prophesied about. Then they pack up, they head to Jerusalem, ask around to see if anyone has seen or heard about the Messiah. In Jerusalem, they're going around asking anyone and everyone that they, have you seen or anything heard about this newborn king? Herod hears about this, calls them in, asks some questions, right? And then the wise men leave Jerusalem, and look what happens when they leave Jerusalem after meeting with Herod and leaving, Matthew 2, 9 and 10, after listening to the king, talking about Herod, they went on their way, now watch this, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Folks, that's amazing. The star reappears. Only now they're in Jerusalem, and as, they, as they're leaving town after meeting with Herod, the star reappears, and so they start heading to Bethlehem. Now, how did that happen? Because, look, we've all done this, riding along in the car at night, you know, and, you know, you look up and, you, you know, you spot a star, and it's like, it's like in the direction you're heading, and you think, I wonder how long it'll take to reach that star, and you never do. How did this happen? How did the star reappear and, 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 and kind of guided them to Bethlehem? Well, let's look at this, all right? Uh, Luke tells us in Luke 2, verse 9, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Okay, question. How bright do you think the glory of the Lord is? Okay. It says, what happened next? Well, the angel, it says that the angel tells them to fear not, 
Okay, but after the angel finishes telling them the good, the good news about the Savior being born in the city of David that night and where they would find him in a stable, lying in a manger, right after that, remember what happened? Luke 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. All right, so here's the shepherds. How many, let me question, how many angels do you you think attended the birth of Jesus? You want to be the one angel that doesn't RSVP to that? Ah, oh, sorry, Father, I've got to run to Walmart and pick up a few things. No, sir, how many angels do you think were at that the birth of Jesus? I'm thinking quite a few, right? So how much light do you think there would have been there? Hey, look, my point being, if there were a lot of angels there, I imagine there was a lot of light around that as well. And we don't know exactly how far away the shepherds were tending their flocks, but I think it's safe to say however far away they were that the glory surrounding Jesus, they probably could have seen that. Right? And as far as the star leading them, could God have made a star to do that? Absolutely. Absolutely God could have done that. I'm not discounting that. But I'm inclined to think that, you know, maybe maybe it was an angel. It could have been an angel, right, that led them to the stable that night. Here's why I say that. In the book of Revelation, it briefly describes the fall of Satan and how Lucifer was cast out of the presence of God. And when that happened, notice how John describes this very significant event. In Revelation 21.4, it says, His tail swept down, talking about Lucifer, His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. Who's that talking about? Angels. It's talking about a third of the angelic host. Right? Because we know that when Lucifer was cast out of heaven, he took a third of the angelic host with him. Yet here, John calls them stars. How did the star, how did the star guide the shepherds? Guide the, well, maybe it was an angel. That's all I'm saying. I'm not trying to explain away a miracle. I'm just saying that, that, that could happen, right? That could happen. It's still a miracle that way. Matthew 2, 10. When they saw the star, watch this. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. All right, let's, let's land this thing. When you come to worship Jesus, what kind of joy do you come with? Do you come with some joy? Do you come with great joy? Do you come with exceedingly great joy? Or do you come with no joy at all? Say, well, it depends on what week it is, right? <laughs> now think about it. How ironic that what started out as a celebration of worship and exceedingly great joy today has become the most depressing time of the year according to statistics. That's right. We talked a little bit about this last week. But this is the time of year when people struggle the most with depression, anxiety, worry, stress. That's the bad news. The good news is, let, 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 me, let me finish telling you the good news. The good news is, because of Christmas, we have hope, we have help. Because it's Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. He's here. He's with us now. So think about this. Joy is a product of something. It results from something. Is it, uh, is it possible that great expectations produces great joy? Because these wise men had expect, they had the, when they arrived, they were going to have an audience with the king, and they got that. And it says that they, re, they had exceed, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Is it possible that great expectations produce great joy? That's my question. Alright? Which means, now watch this, Watch this. Could it be that some of the stress, depression, anxiety, and discouragement that we experience this time of year is because we have our expectations misplaced? That's a fair question. I don't care who you are. Right? 
What if? What if we just did what the wise men did? What if we came to worship with hearts of expectation, expecting that God will indeed meet with us at our point of need and fulfill the promises of his word toward us? I'm telling you, expectant worship can be a game changer for us if we'll just learn to do that. Because each week, we're coming to worship the king, right? We're coming to worship Jesus, the king of kings. On Christmas morning, when children are opening their presents, if they get what they want, they have exceedingly great joy, don't they? If they get what they want, right? They they, they have exceedingly great joy, right? But honestly, I, I think it, it's an even greater sense of joy than that, what the wise men experience, what we can experience. Right? I think it's more on par uh, with, 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 with the joy that we, we see, and we've all seen this on, on the evening news or something, uh, where uh, someone has a spouse serving in one of our armed forces overseas and, they, and they, they, they're flying back home after not having been there for months or maybe over a year or whatever, and, and, and you see, and you see the, whether the husband or the wife, depending on who is, you know, was in the service, but, but you just see on the person waiting for them, the expectation. We've all seen that, man, man it just touches you, doesn't it? That's, that's powerful. That's a, such a powerful thing. I think that's the kind of joy, the expectation that the wise men had here. And you, you can't quantify that. You, you, can't, you can't measure that. You can't chart it out. It's just, man, it's just that's such a cool thing that we can come expecting to worship Jesus the King with that kind of expectation. And when we do, experience that kind of joy. Listen, there's nothing that you're currently facing that a meeting with Jesus can't solve. And that's what we do here on Sunday mornings. We, we just come to meet with Jesus. That's all we want to do. We want to worship Him. We want to meet with Him. And I'm going to say that again. There is nothing you're facing right now that a meeting with Jesus can't solve. Absolutely nothing. I honestly believe that. Right? And so that's what I think we need to do each week here. Have a personal encounter with Jesus. And that's what we strive to do. And if that's not happening for you, listen. If that's not happening for you, then I challenge you to do what the wise men did. Start coming with an expectation that you're going to meet with Jesus. Because guess what? He might actually show up. And that would be a cool thing, wouldn't it? Let's stand. If, if you're here this morning and, and you've never had that personal encounter with the Lord, you've never opened up your heart to receive the gift of God's forgiveness that He sent through His Son, Jesus Christ, you can do that. It's just a matter of acknowledging that you've been living your life for yourself and you recognize that and that you're a sinner. But that's okay. Welcome to the party. We're all sinners. We're all just sinners saved by grace. So if you want to make things right with God, we can do that. It's just a matter of simple prayer. You know, Paul said if we, if we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised Him from the dead, we shall be saved. So if you want to get right with God, you're here this morning, you want to get right, and you know whether you do or not. That's not something you have to well, I don't know if I do it. No, no, no. You know. If you want to get right with God, just pray that simple prayer. Say, Lord, I do ask you to forgive me. I recognize that I've been living my life for myself. I want to begin to live my life for you. So live inside of my heart. Forgive me of my sins and help me to, begin to live my life for you from this day forward. In Jesus' name. And if you're here this morning and prayed that prayer, I, I would like for you to, you know, on those cards that Kyle had mentioned earlier, there's a card on the back of the chair in front of you. There's a, there's a box on there that you can check and say, you know what, I prayed that prayer. 
Because again, we're all about next steps here and we want to help you with that next step. So I pray that you would do that. For the rest of us, Lord, I do pray that you would help us. Uh, maybe, our, maybe we do have, have placed our, misplaced our expectations. So help us uh, as we uh, hopefully begin to change our focus and begin to come expecting to meet with you. And if we'll do that, that you know, you might surprise us, God. You will surprise us. You'll show up big time. And as you do, Lord, help us to be willing to continue to follow you and make those changes that you require of us as we live our lives for you. And we pray these things in your name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Lord bless you. Go with the Lord. Don't forget uh, the uh, 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 Go Kids. Uh, what are they making? Mangers. Christmas in the manger. Yeah.